Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The innovative virtuoso bassist, singer, and composer Esperanza Spalding began seriously performing at the age of five, and her artistry later led her to the White House, playing several times for the Obamas. When Spalding released her seventh album, Twelve Little Spells, she joined me in the WABE studios, and we'll listen back to that interview later in the program. First, Franco Bejarano is a Peruvian-born, Atlanta-raised artist and social worker who addresses societal issues and mental health through his artwork. He was selected by Marta and Hope Atlanta for a public art project on homelessness during the pandemic. Franco Bejarano joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Hi, thank you for having me. Please tell us, how did your involvement with social work and mental health lead to using art as intervention? Yes, so it's been quite a journey, actually. From a very young age, I knew that I wanted to be an artist. I always had an affinity for drawing and painting. And I grew up with the story that I was going to be some famous artist or designer, you know, my whole life. And then, you know, time actually came to choose a major when I went to college. And and then I was hit with the reality that that I come from a working class immigrant family where being an artist is not really a wise career choice. And at that point in my life, I didn't really know anyone who was a successful artist or creative. I didn't know how to get there. And I didn't even know if it was possible. And so choosing art felt like very much like a gamble that I wasn't really willing to take. And at the same time, I was, I was going through this existential crisis looking for meaning, you know, like I knew I had technical skill to make beautiful things, but why, you know, what's, I didn't want to make art for the sake of making art. And so I decided to keep art to myself. It's always been a very intimate process for me. And I decided to go to school for clinical social work where I focused on community psychotherapy, which is just as fulfilling 
for me. And I would say that that truly is my, my true passion, mental health. And so after grad school, I started working for a nonprofit here in Atlanta by the name of In-Town Collaborative Ministries, working for their homeless outreach program. We would engage people experiencing homelessness in the streets and then kind of case manage them and coordinate housing through the city of Atlanta. And that, that's still my job up to this day. We kind of have grown exponentially since then. I remember one day I was housing one of my clients. He had been homeless living outside for 10 years. And we had been working together for a whole year. So we had this whole relationship, this whole dynamic. And here he was, you know, like moving in just like, a, like any regular day and no one was around to see it. And that's when I realized like, wow, this, this moment is quite monumental and people need to see this. You know, people need to see that you can be homeless for 10 years and still rebuild your life. Even when you're at the end of your rope, there's still hope. And so I thought, how can I, how can I commemorate this person's story of resiliency and perseverance in a way that is dignifying? And so, you know, I said, I have some time. Why not do a portrait? Why not do a life-size portrait? I didn't really know how they were, how they were going to turn out. I never had done realism in my work before. Uh, but to my own surprise, they, they were pretty good. And so one portrait turned into two portraits, and then three, and then four. And then before I knew it, I had a whole Instagram account dedicated to that matter. And, and the response has been pretty spectacular. I've done a few other things from the intersection of art and mental health. In 2018, I illustrated and wrote a children's book that tackles clinical depression. And I crowdfunded the money to publish it and distribute it among different agencies here in the city. And I also do some contract work as an art therapist with different agencies around town. But I would say the portraits are the bulk of my work. How does your background in social work inform your style in terms of the portrait. I mean, one could say, well, you could just as easily take a photograph of this person moving into a permanent home for the first time in 10 years. But how does that combination of your interest in the humanity of what you're doing come out on the canvas? I would say that uh, as a social worker and as a mental health practitioner, my interest is not really the style or the result of the artwork. It's really about the process and, and the change that it brings forward. You know, when I'm, when I'm working with my clients and I ask them, hey, can I take your portrait? Can I do your portrait? It becomes like a life changing experience for them because you know, how many people experiencing homelessness can say that, that they had a life-size portrait done? I don't think many. I think it brings a, a sense of dignity to someone that is not used to being dignified in society. I wouldn't say that it, uh, it changes the style. My interest is really in, in the change that it can instill in people. MARTA has been a place of refuge for unsheltered individuals, especially during the pandemic. What COVID-related transit challenge will you address in this artwork? Right, so, so part of this project, so this is the Arts and Transportation Rapid Response, and it's a national initiative really meant to give public transportation agencies a chance to address challenges uh, that have resurfaced as a result of the pandemic. And so 
the challenge that Marta wants to address is homelessness, which I think it's, it's a very delicate and yet complex matter to discuss in public art, I think. I think homelessness and public transportation have a long history of intersecting each other. But because of the pandemic, there has been a significant increase in individuals riding the trains, using them as shelter. As a result of, you know, A, more people becoming homeless and B, like places shutting down that would otherwise be used as shelter, like public libraries. And so I think MARA has really positioned itself as an agency that wants to help homelessness. I think last year, I think it was late 2020, they partnered with Hope Atlanta to create a homeless outreach team dedicated to working within the MARTA system exclusively. And so part of the process is that I, as the artist, will shadow the MARTA Hope team to get an understanding of the population we're working with and really have a chance to listen to some of the voices that I want to highlight from my art. I wondered how you felt when you found out you were awarded this project by the Atlanta City Council? It was actually quite a shock. It was organized through my job uh, at Intern Collaborative Ministries. I was supposed to be walking in for a meeting, so I thought, and then I actually walked into like a party with my family and friends and coworkers and colleagues from other agencies. It, it was truly, it was truly an honor. I, I think I, I have been doing this work for so long. I think, well, it's only really been four years, but there not a lot of people stay long-term in homeless services, I believe. And so by virtue of being working within the system for so long, I have housed a quite a high number of people experiencing homelessness. And I guess my, my job thought I was deserving of being recognized and, and I'm very happy they did. I can imagine. Franco, would you talk a bit about using art therapy yeah, so I don't think that people really understand what art therapy is. Uh, it's a very mystified subject. A lot of people think that if you are an artist, then you can do art therapy by by virtue of working with individuals. But I, art therapy really is a mix of art and, and psychotherapy. So it's really exploring feelings through the medium of art. And I think it works best for people who perhaps are not used to regular therapy, who are not able to talk their feelings out. There's such a power in art that enables you to release emotions and let go of things that you have been bottling up. Historically, it's mostly done with children, but I think anybody, no matter how old you are, can benefit from art therapy. And how have you used it in your social work? Yeah, so I believe it was 2018. It was a few, it was maybe two years ago. I started doing art therapy for a nonprofit here in the city called Chop Art. And what they do is they give art lessons to youth experiencing homelessness in the shelter system. And so they really wanted to bring someone in who had that social work therapeutic aspect and as well as the art aspect. And so a lot of the work that we did involved telling your narrative I think if you're someone, I think if you're a young person experiencing homelessness, you don't really have that much access to tell the world who you are. And well, we did some other things, but that's, uh, there's confidentiality issues that I can't really... I see. Okay. <laughs> well, then I was going to ask what the most striking example, or if you could share any examples of breakthrough that you felt 
you reached with some of your clients as they showed you what they created in art? Yeah, so a while ago, I was doing art therapy with a few individuals in a, in a group setting. This was when I was uh, in grad school. And I had this client who, he was depressed, extremely depressed. I'm talking like catatonic. He wouldn't speak. He wouldn't, he wouldn't say anything. He had a, a lot of really big issues, like emoting. And he had been in therapy for God, like three, four years and nothing would work. And so someone said, well, let's just throw him into the art therapy group. You know, why not? Let's see. Let's see what happens. And we come to realize that this person had, sure, he, he was unable to express himself verbally, but he had an amazing ability to express himself visually. And I guess no one had realized this. Over the span of the group, uh, this person was able, he was the best artist in the group, let me tell you. And the stories that he told through his art were things that had not been addressed in therapy for the past four or five years. At the end of the group, like maybe a few weeks later, he actually started conversing with people. And it was a shock to the whole agency. And so I think that, I think it speaks a lot about the way that we communicate. Verbal communication is not the only way to express oneself. I think expression through art and art therapy, is, it's really undervalued and it should be, be more utilized in, in not just clinical services, but in everyday life. Franco, what message would you like martyr writers to take away from your work? I've been thinking about this for quite a long time. And I think when sometimes when homelessness is portrayed in art or advertisement or TV, and it's usually directed to the general public, in order to invoke a feeling of compassion, it, it portrays people in a way that if you're experiencing homelessness yourself, it most likely doesn't make you feel great. And so I think part of why someone experiencing homelessness might seek shelter in Marta is because they want to seek a sense of normalcy. You know, they're taking the train just like you and me. They want to be anonymous when riding the train just like you are when you're commuting home and maybe you're listening to music or reading a book. Except that, you know, that person really has nowhere to go. And so there, there are a few things here, you know, I think for the general public, I want them to take away a sense that homelessness does not look the way that you have been conditioned to think it looks like. That quote-unquote normal person sitting next to you, they could have no place to sleep tonight, and, and you would never think about it. I think at the same time, I think if you're experiencing homelessness and you're looking at this art, I want them to know that there is hope and that there are resources and that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and this is not the end for you. I think there's there's a tremendous amount of resiliency in, in this population that needs to be celebrated and, and displayed, and, and it has huge potential for self-actualization. Artist and social worker Franco Bejarano, his portrait project, Street to Home, is on view at Marta's Five Point Station on the Southside Concourse level. You can learn more about Beirano and his collaboration with MARTA's HOPE program on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, 
We'll revisit my conversation with the Grammy Award-winning virtuoso bassist, singer, and composer, Esperanza Spalding. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Esperanza Spalding won a Grammy for Best New Artist in 2011. But the virtuoso bassist, singer, and composer was by no means new to her art form. She began seriously performing at the age of five. And later, her artistry landed her at the White House, playing several times for the Obamas. When Spalding released her seventh album, Twelve Little Spells, she joined me in the WABE studios and talked about her first ever performance. I do remember the first quote-unquote concert that I performed. I think I was six And I had written some piano composition. And I remember I was so terrified. My hands were shaking at the piano. But I I went up and I played that thing anyway. And maybe got a taste for it or maybe was horrified. I don't remember now. But I definitely have that distinct memory of deciding to go ahead anyway, even though I was wanted to disappear, you know. I read that. You were performing with the Chamber Orchestra, Chamber Ensemble of Mm -hmm. Oregon Mm -hmm. at age five? Is that correct? Well, I think I started studying with them. I mean, essentially, I understood I wanted to do music. You know, I mean, understood is a big word for a five-year-old. I just was compelled to go towards sound. And for... The resources that we had, the best option seemed to be this program. And at that time in Portland, Oregon, there were a lot of music programs. You know, you could you could ingest get ingested into a lot of different paradigms of musical education. That just happened to be the one that we found first, you know. Um, so a lot of children were playing in that ensemble, I mean in that program. It was it was really amazing and something that I bring up a lot around the narrative in jazz today of like women in music and gender equality is the fact that in that orchestra, um, there was no question of gender. There were so many kids playing every and any instrument. So that, that was my normal, you know, starting from five. The normal was anybody can come in here and learn about music and the teachers don't really care who you are, what you look like <laughs> as long as you're practicing. So that set the tone, I guess, for, um, 
everything that I've pursued from then on. Which instruments were you playing then? You said you were singing. Shoot. I didn't really, ca- I didn't really care. You, you know? just learned. I mean, I just would grab. You know, we did a, a medley from Peter and the Wolf. So anything I heard that moved me, I wanted to play that, and that's still my <laughs> approach to to making music. You know, if it calls me in, like the oboe did, or the violin, or later the guitar, or whatever, I didn't spend a lot of time on those instruments, but. If it calls me in, I had to investigate it, you know. So when when the bass showed up later, it was such a different quality of a call, you know. Of course, a five-year-old can't play it. Well, yeah, I was was 15, and granted, you know, none of these adventures in music were being pursued for a career, you know. I had no intention of being a full-time professional musician. Yeah, it's just, I think it's like anything when you're a kid. You move toward what feels good. You know, you move toward the people that you enjoy. And we moved around a lot when I was a child. So a lot of, like, um, local community wasn't being sustained. But there was this music that was always there. And there were these people that I would see consistently from year to year in the summer program. So I was really just drawn to be in the music. It was like a loving place. It was a place that felt good. Oh, I love um, the idea of music as community, oh, regardless of locale. It totally is. And that is that carries out throughout the planet. You know, everywhere we go, everywhere I've been, I connect with people who have this common passion. You know, it really is this fabric that connects us. And it's not contingent on genre, you know. I, I think right away a musician can recognize uh, dedication and musicianship in another person and oh. that's like the fundamental you know that it really does create like a kind of global community you know and that was really attractive to me when I was a kid so then at 15 what was new about the bass was the sound and the instrument was calling and that hadn't really happened before ah. so um, and also right away talk about community here's this mode of playing that asks you to be spontaneous yourself and creative. And that was new, having been in the classical music pedagogy for 10 years. So it was like this untethering, mm-hmm. you know, it was like this newfound freedom. And that is really what I think kept pulling me forward in the field of, of jazz at that time. We, if there's anyone who has not heard Esperanza Spalding before, we have a clip of her playing on the sunny side of the street <laughs> at the White House live in 2016. I used to walk in the shade with my blues on But I'm not afraid It's over Pass the ride over Grab your head and grab your coat Leave your worries on the doorstep Just direct your feet To the sunny side of the street Can't you hear the pit of pat and the heavy tune in your step. Life could be so sweet on the sunny side. 
so glorious. And I had to remind myself that you were playing the bass while you were singing because each, both your voice and the, your virtuosity playing the instrument are so center stage. How do you connect melody and feel what's coming out in your face? Or do, does, does this not require that step of that Oof. thought process? Well, honestly, I'm moving past that chapter okay. of uh, musical expression. Yeah. And partially because I kind of had this revelation is too strong of a word, I guess, but I started to feel like the anomaly of what I can do or have done was starting to overshadow the content of my music, of my compositions and my words. Because like all of us, we, we're growing into our passion, right? You, There are some projects that I'm less proud of, but <laughs> um, now I really feel like in these last three years I've found a voice that I can stand behind, you know, as a creator. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Esperanza Spalding. Now we're going to move to 12 Little Spells. And I should just say, it feels really important to iterate that, you know, the individual, the creator, has a right and really the only authority to say what they are, you know. And it's been hard in a kind of surprising way to actually free myself from the signifier of being a jazz musician. Oh. Even though, you know, content-wise, it's really clear that the music has shifted. And, um, you know, that particular gig, I was asked to come represent an art form that I care a lot about. That song wasn't my choice to play, you know. Really? Yeah. And Did the Obamas choose I it? I mean, whoever produced the event ch chose it. And I love that song, but it's, it is, um, I can see why, you know, that's very clearly identifiable. You know, it's like, here's this woman, uh, I'm brown, I sing that way, I can play that way. It's like, okay, jazz. And now as, as I push toward a vision that I don't know, how to describe in reference to anything else. I mean, mm -hmm. it surely brings in elements of tons of things, but um, I, I find it sort of stifling at times when, you know, the work I'm presenting clearly isn't jazz, okay. but, it, but it keeps being signified as jazz. And uh, I, I just ask to be presented as the way I'm, I'm naming myself, you know, the way I identify how are you identifying? Well, I don't know the signifier yet, you know. Okay. I think, and I don't know how helpful a signifier is because the word jazz brings a lot with it, you know. It brings um, some expectations of what you come to hear. I was just reading Duke Ellington talk about that, about you go to a great restaurant and you think that what you want is a steak, but they don't make steak anymore. They actually make something else, which is much better, and... You can be so attached to what you came in expecting to order. Maybe you're not open for or, you know, prep, prep your taste buds for something delicious coming in. And in my case, I'm trying to be as explicit as I can that we're not serving steak anymore. <laughs> we're serving something else. <laughs> okay, and so you're approaching this 
as a creator, yeah. this is an original creation you're presenting mm. to listeners, concert goers. Mm. Your latest album, 12 mm. Little Spells, was released over the course of 12 days with one song released at 12, 12 p.m. each day. You also worked on this album for 12 months. What is the fascination you have for the number 12? There are many layers. We could just address 12 in context of the musical scale. Ah. So um, the same way that with these 12 sort of fixed ingredients, the 12 notes, you can combine them in almost an infinite number of ways and produce really any effect, I mean, any sonic effect with melody or harmony or rhythm. And since this project is about the body, I'm applying that idea to what we can do with our, with our organism. You know, it is pretty fixed. We came in with the body we came in with, and despite what we may try to do to it, we essentially are in this fixed vehicle. But within this fixed set of ingredients, the possibilities are really endless. Let's listen to the 12 Little Spells song. A pair of sympathetic ridges Listening to Esperanza Spalding. The title song from Twelve Little Spells. Did Arnold Schoenberg, the Viennese <laughs> composer who developed the twelve tone approach to mm -hmm. composition, was he an inspiration in your twelve tones? That's interesting. I actually forgot now that you mention it. I've been reading his um his, I can't say a treatise, but he wrote a book about theory and composition. It's too far, it's too advanced for me. I mean, I certainly am not trying to write 12 tone music, and if I was, I failed miserably. Um, but it's the idea that with creativity and intention, and applied creativity and intention with the body, you can unpackage all of these new um, approaches to your life. I mean, you we are composing our existence, hey? And just with intention, based in the body because anything we do has to come through this vehicle, um, you can truly manifest the unseen. You know, I think Schoenberg would have just been thrilled with well, this. Well, as a, as a, I'm going to say as a philosopher, he's the guiding light. So the what I get from him mostly uh, is from his commentary on music and on the creative process. And he's really honest about this dance that all composers are engaged in, where you you want to surprise a listener. I mean, he talks about this literally in the structure of just creating harmonic pr 
progressions. We all want to be surprised. That's part of the joy of life. Yet, as he would argue, we don't want to be that surprised. <laughs> so <laughs> keep it safe. Yeah, it's like you you want to kind of know what's coming, but then be surprised and then shown that it's not out of control, that the surprise is contained and somebody's still sort of holding it together for you. <laughs> um, and other just poignant and pithy insights on the creative process and music in general. And actually, I would really suggest reading the introduction to his book on theory. And, um, oh God, I wish I could remember the name exactly. But I if should you, remember Well, it if you search college, it, you'll find it. Yes. You know, the the whole introduction, it's it's pretty thick. I mean, about a quarter of the book is, intro, is his introduction, but it's really, um, it's really grounding. And again, you know, he reiterates what we all have experienced from practice that essentially, you know, what you wanted to do. Mm. And that's the guiding light, not the theory. And it's not the pedagogy. You use that to be able to hopefully polish your ideas, essentially, because they all come out messy. That's part of the creative process. Nothing comes out arranged. You know, nothing comes out in a 32 bar form with perfect lyrics the first time. It, it is an intuitive and visceral experience being inspired. And when did you begin writing poetry, or did the lyrics just flow? I think I started writing poetry with the song Apple Blossom, because at that time in my musical exploration, so that was 2010 when I was writing that record, um, I had never seriously considered the role of lyrics. I just put whatever in there that sounded like it worked. And then when the idea for Apple Blossom showed up and I really took the time to think about what I wanted to do and how I wanted to portray the story, I realized that I really didn't have the tools to do it. it so it took a really long time to, to write, to compose that, to write those words. But I think that's when I realized, oh, I need to investigate this. I need to go study and learn some method. So around 2000 and 12, I really started delving into the method of <laughs> writing, probably W-R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, <laughs> poetry, and um, for a project with Wayne Shorter called Gaia, where he asked me to write a little libretto to this, this um, symphonic piece he had written. So that's where I first started really trying to employ some, some poet, poetic skills and thank God for that revelation with Apple Blossom because I really identify as a poet too, a fledgling poet. And now I'm taking that piece of it much more seriously. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights speaking with Esperanza Spalding. We're going to listen to another cut from your latest album, 12 Little Spells. Before we do, do you want to tell us anything about Touch is Mine? Ooh, Touch and Mine, yeah. I got initiated into Reiki and have been moving through the practice. I mean, moving through, moving through the practice, yeah. It really has its own um, sort of pace and time and pedagogy that you only really get to through experience and when I was writing these spells 
I was in the middle of this very intense initiation experience um, that's still going on. <laughs> but um, I wanted to, in the spell for the hands, I wanted to bring the listener's awareness t- to this potential of sensation in the hand that I think we miss because we don't often think about what the things feel like that we're touching. And there's so much information. Um, if nothing else, you could just think of in terms of vibration that's that's traveling through our skin, particularly through our hands, are so sensitive. And as I was writing it, I was reminded of an experience I had in Beverly, Massachusetts at the School for the Deaf, where we were playing music, and the students who who didn't have hearing the way we're used to thinking of hearing capabilities listened to us by holding beach balls. And when we tried that, the principal of the school came over and plugged our ears and spoke to us as we held a beach ball. And I realized, oh my gosh, there, there is so much information coming in through my hands all the time and really our, our whole body. But we, we defer to sight and we defer to sound. So it's an invitation to um, just have three minutes <laughs> of, of tuning in to all the information that's traveling through your fingertips in your hands. Let's hear some of Touch's mind. Spalding and Touch in Mine off of her latest album, Twelve Little Spells. That does leave the listener kind of spellbound. <laughs> you you yes. achieved that effect. <laughs> Tell me about Mr. Rogers and Yo-Yo Ma. Uh, oh my God, this last, this documentary. Oh, it kills me. I saw it on a plane and I was just... I was crying from like minute five. I I just have such profound love and admiration for that man. And now, well, he his show and Yo-Yo Ma being a guest on the show is the reason that I got into the music, into music. And now as an adult learning more about his life, I realize in another way he's instilled in me this idea that from music, from a foundation of music, you know, he was a music major first. Um, you can use that as a vehicle or an entry point into the heal, the field of healing. And he 
was a self-proclaimed healer. He really was. And he went into television because he saw the potential for this format of entertainment, quote unquote, to be a tool for really helping people. And I find that so affirming and encouraging that there truly are paradigms for what now I'm looking to do, which is really, um, you know, ground my understanding of how <laughs> healing works through the performing arts in um, in a degree based in early childhood development or music therapy, et cetera, and sort of marrying that with what we learn from experience of making music for people. Mm. You know, you, he's a huge inspiration and such an innovator, you know, such an innovator of, of combining all these seemingly disparate fields into this very personalized format for giving his heart, you know, sharing his love. Virtuoso bassist, singer, and composer Esperanza Spalding. You can learn more about her album, Twelve Little Spells, on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, author Catherine Applegate explains to children why they shouldn't be afraid of failure. The message in her picture book, Sometimes You Fly. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. When you think of the typical children's book, you may think once upon a time and happily ever after. Well, Catherine Applegate's latest book focuses on failure. She's the author of many young adult and middle grade books and won the Newbery Medal for her book, The One and Only Ivan. She spoke to us about why she felt the need to make the picture book, Sometimes You Fly. You know, I think the initial catalyst for this picture book, Sometimes You Fly, was the fact that I've been doing so many school visits where teachers will ask me, could you please tell these kids that rewriting is part of writing? Um, So often we think we have to be perfect on that first try. I was certainly one of those kids. And, um, you know, rewriting is nothing, nothing but the, the core of writing. It's pretty much all you do. And you make lots and lots and lots of mistakes. So the more I talked to kids, the more I realized um, how important it was to get that message across because we celebrate milestones, uh, but we often forget to celebrate all the effort that goes into those milestones. Mm. Now, your books are filled with imaginative narratives and vividly drawn characters with sometimes you fly, you deliver the message directly to the reader. Why was it important to say it outright rather than um, couching the message inside of a story? So much of this book is dependent on the illustrations by Jennifer Black Reinhardt. The uh, the page turn is 
is ultimately the the key to getting this story because we're seeing before and after again and again. So I wanted to make that very clear to even the youngest reader and then let the pictures do the heavy lifting. Boy, I I sometimes feel like I'm irrelevant to this book. The illustrations are so wonderful, Um, so funny, so detailed. you look at uh, these families and these kids and you see their frustration and you see their joy and it's it's really palpable. Yeah, it opens with this picture of a disheveled-looking mother mixing ingredients on a messy <laughs> countertop. You know, forget Martha Stewart. Um, <laughs> the contents yeah. of an overturned bag of flowers releasing a soft little white spray on top of a crying <laughs> baby on the floor. This is reality. And then the text on that page reads... Before the cake. And then the next page shows the baby celebrating its first birthday, his or her first birthday. And um, that cake looks pastry shop perfect. But how did you, I guess, could you tell us about the process of working with your illustrator? Clearly, you have the story in mind, but does she in any way influence the narrative? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's it's interesting with picture books, and I've only done three. I tend to write novels uh, that are, are middle grade, so they're longer. But it is ultimately such a collaboration. And very often, you don't meet your illustrator until long after the project is finished. It's that art director and your editor who are pairing you up, who are playing matchmaker. And they knew that Jennifer did these wonderful domestic scenes and really had a gift from, you know, conveying children's emotions. Um, I should stipulate that I personally am not allowed in the kitchen uh, since I can barely boil water. Fortunately, I'm blessed with a husband who likes to cook. But um, that uh, that opening scene, boy, that's that's how I would look uh, disheveled, as putting it mildly. And um, so she took those, you know, I I just gave her a handful of words and suddenly you see this, this gorgeous tableau spring to life. And, um, and it was really fascinating to, to see how she took some of these, uh, these, these moments. There's one where a, a ballet dancer has made a, a fatal error and is facing the wrong way, um, looking at her audience and the 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 look of terror and desperation and frustration is is hilarious <laughs> and you know we've all had those moments what i love is that she took it from um from very young to um to near adulthood to graduation and beyond so we could see milestones all along the way which is um a, a, was my hope for the book that um, there are so many places. Uh, sometimes it's it's something sort of process-driven, like learning to read, where we don't necessarily celebrate the moment, but, oh, how important is that? Yes. Now, you have two children. How old are they? 
They are uh, 19 and 21, just about to turn. And uh, so it is, it's an effort to kind of remember those moments. And I find school visits help me tremendously, kind of mining that, uh, those mommy moments again. <laughs> and how lucky are those school children. <laughs> the theme of overcoming struggles and sticking to the course apparently was paralleled by your writing process for Sometimes You Fly. How long were you trying to write this book? <laughs> this went through so many incarnations. I've, I've long since lost count. It's a, it's a funny thing about picture books because uh, so many people look at them and say, man, I could write that in an afternoon, but they're tremendously difficult to write. Uh, they're, they're poetry. You know, it's prose pared down to its very essence. And because you're collaborating with that, you know, that imaginary uh, illustrator, it's, um, it's doubly difficult. So uh, I, I, I absolutely lost count. But then that's my writing process generally. In fact, my whole writing career has been sort of, you know, stumbling and, and failing and then resurrecting myself. Well, what finally made you feel you got it right, as we see and read sometimes you fly now? You know, there is a moment when you get the early illustrations and you you see those page turns and you, you get to that final moment and you go, wow. And I just, I had tears in my eyes. I was <laughs> so delighted to see it, to see it come together. It's, it's such a gift for a writer. Author Catherine Applegate. More information about her picture book, Sometimes You Fly, is available on our website, wabe.org slash city lights. Finally, last week, the Atlanta Ensemble Core Dance received an anonymous donation of $400,000. This generous gift will provide funds for upcoming projects. Their 42nd season will focus on a new immersive arts experience developed by Sue Schroeder, the artistic director of Core Dance. Plus, they're working on two film projects, one in collaboration with international organizations and the other as part of their real art film series movements. Real art is a platform of original films displayed on the front window of Cordance's studio building. Schroeder's original film, Together, is the first in this series. It's screening now. Five other commissioned video installations will follow from October through May. Cor is also hoping to include in-person performances, summer classes, and lunchtime chats in their upcoming season. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. We'll be back Tuesday at 11 a.m. with director and producer Michelle Ferrari. She'll tell us about her new PBS documentary, Sandra Day O'Connor, the first. 
If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is The First Time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Wishing you a safe and good holiday weekend. And thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.